0: I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Gingilla Squeaks. Sorry for the slight delay. Actually, it's for good reasons this time. Um, not Well, not that travel is a bad reason, or there was some travel involved. Basically, my, my humble podcast, after some time of running this, I am about to join a podcast network and have a, a sort of podcast agent. And this has involved a little bit of technical tweaks here and there. And often the way with podcasts is uh, there's often a delay in uh, in things connecting up when you switch providers and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it didn't really want to impact the release of an episode and that just took a little bit longer than expected so I was kind of waiting to release this episode and I've been waiting for a while because I've actually got a really good interview for you with Aaron A. Reed, author of 50 Years of Text Adventures which is a Great book that is coming out soon. I backed it on Kickstarter, but he was kind enough to give me a press copy. And Text Adventures, I like playing them. If any of you have ever watched or listened to my Solo Adventurer show, which is going on a bit of hiatus, I'm rethinking what I'm going to do with it. Um, I like those sorts of games. I am writing some of them myself as well. But it was actually quite a fascinating read, and I'm only up, I'm not even halfway through, I don't think. It's uh, It just touches on a lot of computing history in general. So stick around for that interview. But first, here's a few links. Going back a couple of weeks now, but I'm catching up, was WWDC, the Worldwide Developers Conference, which I always have to remind people because these days everybody gets all interested and enthusiastic about various consumer releases, and people forget it's actually aimed at developers. Now, before we get to the elephant in the room, the one more thing, I'd like to cover a few other details. There were operating systems announced. I always like to hear what's coming in macOS, for example. That's one that appeals to me a lot. I mostly just use, uh, actually, no, I entirely just use macOS and iPadOS, and iPadOS especially and macOS are all starting to sort of merge in the middle. I am kind of okay with that. Um, but actually, some of the features that interested me the most were coming in Safari and WebKit. And I have featured here a post from the WebKit blog talking about all the new features in Safari 17. And uh, some of these are quite interesting. And I think the one that caught a lot of people's attention was the one that lets you turn websites into apps. And this Sherlock's. To coin a phrase from WWDC's and other Apple announcements, Sherlock's, some other applications that do this already. Uh, I think it's interesting because I would imagine a lot of those do it through Chromium, which is quite heavy and is sort of what Electron is, um, which many of you know I <laughs> have an aversion to. And if it was using the WebKit Safari engine instead, it would be much more native and integrated. So I'm interested to try that. I might fire up a VM. And I have a video on uh, emulation for macOS and virtualization for macOS and give it a whirl and report back on that in a forthcoming episode. Okay, the elephant in the room, the Vision Pro. I am pretty skeptical, to be honest with you, about VR and AR. AR has a lot of industrial uses and Apple is kind of straddling here into the sort of business world. of uh, They demonstrate a lot of productivity applications with the Vision Pro, which is still just a prototype and a lot of it was simulated uh, using office suites and then things like that. And a lot of people are raving about the quality of the experience and will ignore the price because this is still sort of developer early adopter pricing. Um, So I think it's almost irrelevant to think about it right now. But um, I just wonder if – so the industrial use cases are looking at things like overlays for safety manuals and part numbers and information and and things like that in service places, in factories, in installers, which actually has a very practical use. It sort of saves this kind of constant having to carry around manuals and call back home to to get details and things like that. Um, But this is not – Apple is not in that world. This is the kind of prosumer slash – small business owner, and a, and there's a couple of posts I will feature here from Computer World and Technology Review that really ask that question of as impressive, as impressive as it is, who is it for? Who is it going to be for? And I still, like a few other skeptics, kind of sadly predict this will be a flop. Apple has not had a flop for a while. It's probably due one. I think it's a bit late to the party when the party is almost winding down anyway. Uh, And the other post I feature here talks about can it encourage developers to develop. Um, They're sort of saying that a lot of applications you can just tick a box like you can with many other Apple platforms and it will just work. We always know that is not really the case. Catalyst, the library that just lets you... Um, allow iPad apps to work on Mac. Many developers don't even enable it. And even the ones that do, they often look and feel a bit weird. So I'm not completely convinced. We will see. I am not particularly interested in trying the device. Uh, it's quite difficult for people with bad eyesight. And I've also heard rumors that for those of us with bad eyesight, and I have very bad eyesight, it will also be more expensive. The few times I tried VR, I had the same issue. Uh, I can't even get the uh, headsets over my glasses, for example. So I remain unconvinced. I remain kind of unenthusiastic as well, which is the interesting thing. When I think about things like blockchain and AI, I may not be particularly uh, I don't know, enthusiastic about using them, but I still find them intriguing. But this, I just have no real interest. Um, I kind of like computers and I like computing, but I like computers and computing that I don't know, give me a separation between worlds. And this is sort of too much uh, crossing, uh, blurring those lines. I don't know. I'm just uninterested, but we will see. And technically, anyway, it's a marvel (laughs) and we'll see, I suppose. Next, it would not be a tech podcast at the moment without having something about artificial intelligence and generative AI specifically. And here's just a few quick links. I think we're all fed up with hearing about this. First on the Washington Post, a list of the websites that ChatGPT uses to get its model from. And some of these were interesting to me because it included some of the obvious ones like Google, and Wikipedia, but also things like Scribe, which actually I'm a subscriber to, and several others. So getting um, quite a broad gamut of data, actually. Including, and scribed is a little bit this, but also some others, some sites that have some, shall we say, less than legitimate content on, even vaguely pirated, which is interesting and legally. That's a weird, legal gray area. <laughs> Not that ChatGPT already hasn't crossed over into many of those. And then there's also a lot of others that have the potential to expose personal information and private information from a variety of sources that surprise people. Things like voter registration details, which I guess is all about statistical data, but you're never really sure what's been removed. And then even uh, sites like Patreon and Kickstarter, which got a lot of artists worried about, is it taking ideas from there? And kind of that's how it creates cool new ideas is by looking at successful projects and things like that. I mean, all of these data sets make sense, I think they just get people concerned about what kind of information is getting in there. And I covered this on the last episode about how you can opt out of this scraping. But have a look at the list. There's sort of a few at the top, which are fairly obvious, and then the rest are fairly low down on the list, and maybe just by their sheer lack of size in comparison to Google and Wikipedia. But some of them are quite interesting and do really start posing a lot of questions. So thanks to The Washington Post for highlighting that and giving us Many more things to think about. On that, we should talk a little bit more about the ethics of all of this. This was also over on Computer World because Microsoft is going all out with this effort and yet has fired a lot of its ethics team almost at the same time. So whether it was a budget excuse or whether it was a you're going to get in our way excuse, Who knows? But it's concerning nonetheless, and I don't think many of the other companies involved had particularly big teams on this side either. So what's all that going to mean? Again, sort of the top three of the things I say on this show, we shall see. And finally, on this topic from Bass Wallet, strange sort of name, over on Medium, looking at who should take responsibility for quote-unquote evil design practices. And Bass actually goes into a lot of the classic tomes that feed this discussion. And interestingly, on some of them, like the, like Hooked, the author of Hooked, which is quite well known, uh, actually published a, a follow up book where they sort of <laughs> analyze some of their impact that, uh, that happened indirectly because of the book. And they sort of ended up disagreeing with themselves a little bit, which is which is kind of interesting. And the article goes further into a lot of the philosophical debates. And this is something I've actually said to a lot of my friends who have studied philosophy and wonder what they can do with that in, that, in the past. I don't know about now with things like budgeting issues. Uh, philosophers could be quite valuable in a lot of these companies when it comes to thinking about ethics and sort of potential scenarios. But if you're not one of those companies, and increasingly that may be the case, who is going to be held responsible for this? And I think, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it's going to be nobody. But who could it be? Who does the buck stop with? Is it the person who implemented the feature? Is it an ethics division? Is it a CEO? Is it a CTO? Is it a lawyer? Who is it? Who should it be? And how can we get more people to think about this instead of just leaving it until when you're sued or when you're dragged through the media because something bad happens? And finally, I have covered how much I like Raycast on the show and on my streams and YouTube and blogs and various things in the past. And I've always been fascinated to know how they managed to make a macOS native application work with a JavaScript API for creating extensions. And they published a blog that tells you just that. It got a little uh, in the weeds for some of uh, my knowledge, but it's still quite interesting to see the process they went through and how many processes they went through to get to an ideal in the long run. So I found it quite an interesting read. And if you're up for understanding some of the technical side of it, even if you don't use Raycast, have a look. And finally, over on the BBC, this was an article about how the, the bottom is sort of falling out of digital nomadism. And uh, in many cases, they talk about how a lot of people just get a bit lonely after a while, to be honest with you. this I sort of wonder how much the uh, pandemic affected a lot of this. A lot of people kind of got stuck during that period, be it away or just back at home and not being able to go anywhere and maybe realise some of the things they were missing But there's also an aspect of that – I've covered this in – I'm not sure if I've covered this on the show or not, or I've just thought about it and talked about it with other people. But a lot of the golden visas, the nomad visas, are starting to dry up as also countries are realising that digital nomads are not as lucrative as they hoped either. So I think something I was thinking about that – as well is that the the sort of remote working trend made this also much more acceptable. Did everything kind of coalesce in the middle ground in that there are not as many pure digital nomads anymore, but there's now a lot, rem- lot more remote workers? And I have kind of observed this myself in that uh, remote working, There's a lot of us have always said, remote working doesn't always mean work from home, but to a lot of people it does. Uh, And that's an interesting discussion point, uh, actually. (laughs) Uh, And some of it's legal, some of it's all sorts of other issues around it, but it's an interesting point. And I sort of wonder if that's the real reason behind all this. For various reasons, remote working is coalescing around the middle ground and the people who do it on the extreme are sort of, they're kind of done with it. Uh, Maybe it's too busy in a lot of these places they used to work at now. Because everybody can do it, but they don't call themselves digital nomads. Uh, they sort of realize what they missed in the past few years. Whatever the reason, it's interesting to see that this trend that everybody said was the next big thing is sort of petering out now. Um, as always, any of your feedback is welcome. ChrisTagela.com. And you can find out more about how to, how to give your opinions. On the show. If you get this through the Substack newsletter, you can also add comments there. And now is my interview with Aaron A. Reed, where we talk about his wonderful book, Fifty Years of Text Adventures. Today I am joined by Aaron Reed, who is well has written, but hasn't necessarily released yet a book covering one of my favorite topics that I've also written a few things on myself but he goes much deeper. But let's uh, maybe have a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you've done before and your interests and what brought you to writing this book in the first place. And then we'll come to the actual book itself.
1: Yeah, thank you, great to be here. Um, I have always been interested in interactive fiction, which is essentially very broadly speaking computer games without graphics, right? So some of the very earliest computer games were in this category because computers kind of, you know, couldn't render 3D worlds and stuff at the time. But it's kind of continued in the decades since then to be a thing that hobbyists and amateurs and even in some cases commercial entities are making again. And as a writer, it's just always fascinated me, this kind of intersection of literary writing, storytelling with the written word and all the different things computers can do. So I came to this project a few years ago, actually right at the start of the pandemic is kind of when the idea hit me <laughs> and I needed something, uh, you know, really juicy to sink my, my teeth into for a while. Uh, of doing this kind of uh, originally blog series and now a book looking at the history of this medium by taking one game from each year in the last 50 years and kind of doing a deep dive into how it worked, what it's about, why it mattered to sort of the history of interactive storytelling. Yeah.
0: And just having a quick look at your website, I can see you've got a few interactive fiction pieces. Uh, You've got some procedurally generated stuff, which is sort of related, some (laughs) conversations with bots. You've got some wonderful projects here, actually. I can also see you have one and any, which is usually more for tabletop role playing. So what what was that for, actually?
1: Yeah, that was um, I I, I kind of I've I've had a very weird sort of, you know, career path kind of dancing through all of these different (laughs) related fields around, you know, interactive text in various ways. The Any was for a role playing game called Archives of the Sky that I actually originated as part of my dissertation uh, because I spent some time (laughs) in grad school studying kind of interactive storytelling and how it works and specifically ways that players can kind of feel more involved in actually the co-creation of an interactive story. Because, you know, I think everyone's familiar with the sort of classic choose your own adventure model of do you take the left door or do you take the right door? And a lot of my research is really into like, well, how can we give players a more interesting decision than that? Right. Like something that they feel more ownership of and more control over. And as part of that work, I kind of dived for a long time (laughs) to the world of tabletop role playing games, which has also been a lifelong passion of mine and specifically kind of indie storytelling games and how they distribute creative authority in different ways. So rather than a game master coming up with the whole scenario that the players then uncover Games where all of the players are kind of equally involved in creating the world and creating the plot. And that game Archives of the Sky specifically came out of a desire to figure out how to make a GM list game where right where no one has come up with the story in advance. But that still has an interesting kind of dramatic structure to it where there are interesting conflicts that get resolved in dramatically satisfying ways. Like, is that possible to do? And so that game uh you know, and other people have done this too, obviously, but that was my own kind of experiment at at that
0: yeah and there's 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 this has been a big uh a big change in a lot of uh role playing recently, well, actually, I don't think recently, but it's become more popular recently these g m free ones I think they are especially popular during a lot of the the most restrictive times in the pandemic because it was hard for people to get groups together or To be honest with you, being a GM takes a lot of energy, and people didn't have that energy. So, just just something (laughs) that you could do very easily. I I have run when I've been thrown in the deep end of being a GM at at games things, and you can run games like Fiasco or something Mm -hmm. very easily without having to do any work ahead of time (laughs) or um, Quiet Year. Um, yeah, yeah. There's all these a sorts whole, of games, which yeah. are wonderful, but very aimed at a, you know, you, I was listening actually to a, a show today, an archive episode between um, a few sort of fairly well-known people in the role-playing world. And they were talking about Lancer, which is a mm-hmm. game that's mm-hmm. very much into like gear and big mechs hitting each other. And, you know, one of the people on the show is very much into the complete opposite of that world. (laughs) But there's something for everybody, you know, I suppose. Um, And sometimes rolling a load of dice and acting like gods is kind of fun as well. Yeah, sometimes that's what you want. um, I'm trying to remember what got me interested in starting to dig more into the world of interactive fiction, to be honest with you and we'll get into what that really means in a moment, but what what was kind of the game or collection of games that made you interested in digging deeper into the sort of
1: research of that field? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm a little too young technically to have grown up with those games, but I kind of backdoored my way into growing up with them because the first computer game I ever played as a kid was my grandpa had an Apple II and for some reason, he was not a games person, digital or analog, but he had a copy of Adventure, which was sort of mm. the original, you know, parser based text adventure game where you're exploring a cave, typing commands. Um, it probably came with this computer, I'm going to guess. <laughs> but whatever oh. for whatever reason, at age five or six, I got plumped down in front of that. And uh, it, I was already like, you know, I loved reading. That was like I was a huge avid reader even as a little kid. Um, and it just totally set my brain on fire. I was like, the idea that you could like read about exploring this cave, but actually control where you were going. Mm-hmm. And it was up to you to get past the obstacles and everything which was just so cool to me as a kid. So I did mm-hmm. kind of start with, you know, essentially one of the first games in that field. And then, um, you know, by the time I was old enough to have allowance money and stuff like that, a lot of those games were kind of on their commercial decline. So I could get them for pretty cheap in the remainder bin and, um, so a lot of my early game experiences were playing those games. Um, so I kind of, you know, gaming moved on. I kind of grew up and and didn't think about them as much. And then I think just after around the time I was in college, I discovered that there was this whole community of people who had basically taken this abandoned medium by the commercial mm-hmm. games industry anyway, and kind of reinvented it and rediscovered yep. it as a medium for storytelling. Yep. And they were doing all kinds of amazing sort of literary experiments with things like unreliable narrators and point of yep. view and really just kind of trying to explore what, you know, this medium could do and what it was capable mm. of. And so then that grabbed me in a totally different way, right? As a more mature person, as, as a writer, as someone really interested in that kind of experimentation. And I got really involved with everything that community was doing. And this was kind of, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s era. Mm. Um, and then I've kind of kept involved with it ever since. But it's just... Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's such a fascinating cross section of multiple interests of mine. And uh, I just love, you know, the fact that you can make a whole game with text as a sole designer. And that's a lot harder to do with the graphical game because you need yep. graphic yep. skills, sound skills, yep. you know, more coding skills. Um, so, yeah, it's just always been uh, fascinating to me as a sole creator. Yeah, that's, oh, it's, it is
0: a very whole interesting world, which I've only really started to dabble in with myself. But I think you're right there. It's this, if you want to make games, but you can't... I mean, saying you can't code is always one of these sort of very defeatist statements. But, okay, if you haven't got time to learn how to code, maybe it's, <laughs> you just want to tell stories. Um, there are ways of doing it. Um, and it's interesting because there's even tools that start to cross over. Like I don't know if you've ever looked at uh, Inky for example, Mm -hmm. which sort of gives you these paths into taking it into a game engine like Unity. Um, I don't know how many people do it, but it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. And I think a lot of designers, storytelling designers for big games will use some of the tools like twine and things like that to prototype. I even read the, um, Mark, um, I can't remember his name for some strange reason, but the creator of the Bandersnatch even
1: oh, created right. the storyboard yeah, for it in yeah, Twine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> So you know, um, it's it's uh, it's a way to to mix medium from from these tools. But we've jumped. We've actually jumped far ahead into the most recent <laughs> of the fifty years. Um, And it's funny that I I want to pick up on something you said, because I never got to play those games. And we'll come to what I mean by that in a minute, because uh, I've started reading the book. Um, I did actually back the book on Kickstarter in the first place, because I just loved the idea. But then we actually spoke, you you gave me a a press copy, even though (laughs) I actually sort of could have waited a bit later and got one anyway, but I wanted to sort of get ahead of that and maybe have help some coverage for the book. But um, I haven't managed to get massively far yet because there's a lot. Um, The level of detail you went to, and you said you've done this in less than three years, is kind of outstanding. So before I get into those games, how did you do this in such a relatively short period of time? And (laughs) the book goes into a lot of detail with, I assume, speaking to a lot of people, the ones who are still alive and et cetera, et cetera. Some of them seem to be hard to get hold of on others. like... How did you accomplish
1: all this in that period of time? Yeah, this is a very reasonable question. (laughs) that I get asked a lot, actually. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of it's an interesting combination of things. So I definitely sort of have a workaholic vibe. Like when I get into a project, I get really into it and probably, you know, too into it. Um, So there's that. I mentioned, you know, the pandemic being an influence. And I think kind of what happened is that, you know, I had finished grad school a few years ago and I think I was kind of missing it, you know, the. The kind of, you know, getting lost in research, the, uh, you know, um, doing deep dives into things and and that kind of technical, you know, uh, not technical writing, but but, you know, a specific kind of, you know, research focused writing. Um, and so coming back to that after having, you know, not done it for a few years. Uh, I I think I just kind of threw myself into that research and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think honestly, the pandemic was the biggest factor. I just, you know, suddenly had all this time. (laughs) Yeah, I was by myself in my house, all my, you know, engagements have been canceled. Um, uh, Yeah. And I really just kind of used a lot of the first part of that research, you know, as a distraction from what was happening in the rest of the world. Um, But then the other thing too, you know, as I've mentioned, it's kind of been a lifelong passion of mine. So So I definitely did a huge amount of research, but I also was starting from a foundation of, you know, knowing where to sniff for the interesting stories, uh, you know, having met a lot of the people involved beforehand and already knowing, you know, some of what was going on and why those stories were interesting. So I definitely was kind of starting from a much more advantageous place than if I would just, you know, casually gotten interested in this and decided, oh, I'm going to write a book about this. I kind of had this, this lifelong experience drawn, which was also very useful.
0: I'm going to come back now to when you said um, these games or those games, because I would say probably my first interaction with what I would call interactive fiction and what you sort of do, or they only include one, I think in the book is actually um, those sort of choose your own adventure style books, Mm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, very interactive fiction in some respects because you're, flicking backwards and forwards through them, thumbing them, trying to find the passage, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Yep. Um, you include the, the cave out of time, the choose your own adventure. I would say, I think mostly because I grew up in the UK, but also because I'm a little too young for the choose your own adventure books. I grew up on the fighting fantasy and the lone wolf books. Yeah. Yeah. Both yep. of which are going through their own renaissance at the mm-hmm. moment. The Lone Wolf books are, are being re-released despite the author being dead. Um, and I actually repurchased the first five of them recently, which is, nice, <laughs> which is kind of fun. And the fighting fantasy ones have also um, had their own sort of second lease of life. The, the creators of those obviously went on to create Games Workshop, which gives them a little bit more um, credence in the industry, I suppose. But that was kind of my first foray into what could be considered interactive fiction now but the interesting thing is even though books are the older medium that's not where it starts is it and you start the book um in 1971 but you do actually mention in some of them and i made some notes i'm trying to find them now that people you especially mention this in the choose your own adventure chapter because it's a book, so that technology has existed for some time that people were experimenting with this in like the, the thirties as well, I think. Yeah, I um,
1: yeah. It's, it's really interesting writing a book like this because you, you really kind of viscerally realize how little the term first, how how infrequently mm. that's accurate. <laughs> you know, so many things that are famously called the first, whatever, almost always somebody less famous did it earlier. But yeah, choose your own Adventure is a fascinating example because there are all kinds of earlier experiments with making books that yeah. you read in, non-linear orders in various ways. So way back in the 1930s, there was a pair of women who wrote a book called Consider the Consequences that was basically exactly a choose your own adventure down to the structure of, you know, if you want to make this decision, turn to this page. If you want to make that decision, turn to that page. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's there's various other examples. There was a whole um, thing in the 50s called Tudor texts. And the idea was yeah. it would be sort of like multiple choice quizzes on various subjects. And you would turn to a different page for each each answer. And the idea was they could actually then, if you guessed, you know, if you answered B and it was supposed to be D, they could then on that page give you an explanation of, oh, if you answered B, you must have made this kind of incorrect assumption. So here's where you went wrong. Here's how you could try again. Right. Um, So, yeah, there were um, there's all kinds of experiments of that. Speaking of game books specifically, um, uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that. You know, you mentioned there's only one choose your Own adventure book, and there are a lot of examples of that in this book where it touches on a lot of kind of related genres, right? In yep. different ways. And one of those is the genre of play by mail games, which before, oh, yep. uh, you know, home computers were as cheap and available as they are now was, you know, for a while, a really popular genre where you basically were playing a very complicated multiplayer digital game, but you were operating it by mailing in through the physical mail mm-hmm. Your, mo- your moves for the next turn and getting back these yep. printouts of reports yep. of what had happened yep. in the computer game world. Right. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, one of the, another super early choose your own adventure style book was created by, um, an early play by mail gamer, uh, um, uh, uh, who also made the tabletop role playing game tunnels and trolls. And it was a time after that. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's, it's that, so interesting to how, yeah, how, how interrelated this history is digital analog games kind of like jumping back and forth, a lot of overlapping creators. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a really fascinating, complicated history. And some even tried, um, I know the creator of the lone wolf books did.
0: And I think Fighting Fancy, these are obviously later. Maybe you cover them in the book, uh, phone
1: games as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't <laughs> actually talk about one of those in the book, but yeah. I don't I'm think aware they were very that. popular, were they? <laughs> yeah, it's another <laughs> weird little niche genre. Yeah, you would call up a phone line and play a choose your own adventure audiobook basically over your touch tone phone. Yep. And it's interesting because even um, with the advent of digital assist, uh, with
0: even with the advent of voice assistants, um, they, they do exist, interactive fiction on Alexa and things like that, but they don't seem to be
1: as popular as you think they would be. Yeah, um, that's, that's yeah. another one that the book doesn't cover, but yeah, they're kind of coming back in a way mm. with, with, you yeah. know, platforms, Siri as a platform, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it amazes me how every time, you know, throughout this whole history and continuing today, obviously, every time there's a new piece of hardware or a new software approach, People will immediately try to figure out how to tell stories with it. Right. So um, you know, <laughs> most recently we've got, you know, the whole AI wave of, of I was large wondering language if you mentioned AI Dungeon. Yes. To so, I know it's yeah. in the
0: book, but I haven't got that far, obviously. Yeah. I haven't but, tried it since a lot of the recent improvements to to yeah. AI, but it's um, It's changing weekly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting time. <laughs> And uh, actually one thing you sort of noted with the the, the writers from the 1930s book, but I've only got the first 10 years in the book so far. But one of the interesting things there, I would say in comparison with now, it feels like anyway, but a lot of the uh, game creators you mentioned, there seem to be a lot more women involved than uh, it perceives to be now. I don't know if that's just the time or the style of game, or is there anything you kind of picked up on there?
1: Yeah, that, that, the, you know, whether people think of, you know, computer users as gendered has been a really interesting thing mm-hmm. that shifted through time. So, in the history of video games, for example, it's really interesting because in the late 70s, early 80s, when the kind of the early game consoles started to appear, advertising was um, super evenly gendered split, right? So, if you look at ads from that period, they're just as likely to show girls as boys or boys and girls mm. together playing games. Um, and that was part of a general trend in the advertising industry at the time <laughs> away from gendered advertising. But then during the 80s, that kind of took a hard turn back in the other direction. And if you go look at video game ads from the late 80s, they're almost all boys playing video game consoles. Hmm. Um, so it's really interesting how that trend kind of mirrors larger societal changes yeah. or yeah. advertising trends or whatever. Um I would say in the last 10 years, there's definitely been a lot more, you know, uh, you know, ab- around 10 years ago now. And it's wild that it's been this long. There was this whole controversy in the video game world called Gamergate that basically yep. boiled down to, you know, kind of trying to gatekeep what kind of people should get to make games and and women and queer people and sort of a lot of people being seen as outside the mainstream of gaming uh, were sort of attacked and shut down. I had personal friends who kind of, you know, yep. bore the brunt of a lot of that stuff. Um and in the aftermath of that i think you saw a lot more of those people you know um entering that space you know to sort of claim it right and say like we belong here we deserve to be able to work in in these spaces too yeah and you've seen more visibility i think for games by non-traditional creators but it is you know it's happened all through history there's an amazing game i write about in 1986 by a woman who kind of pioneered the notion of um, what we now think of as like hypertext fiction, right? So not a text adventure where you're embedded in a game typing commands, but where you're sort of exploring the connections between linked passages of fictional text. Is this um, is Uncle Roger? Or? Yeah. Uncle Roger. Yeah. yeah by Judy Malloy. Uh, it's an mm-hmm. incredible project. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of examples of love that throughout the book of, uh, you know, people who, you know maybe weren't thought of at the time as being the kind of people who were supposed to be making games quote-unquote but yeah. we're still doing amazing work um yeah and sometimes like yeah. that piece is one that wasn't super well known at the time but 20 years later people kind of started saying hey actually this was really important and this was doing this before a lot of other people were doing it so it's 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 cool to me to see those stories i think it
0: i think this is general if, if game, this is gaming in general but some of the, even these early games seem so inventive for the time as well. Like the, I actually just finished reading the the Mind Forever foraging, mm, Mind Forever yeah. foraging, okay. Mind Forever voyaging uh, chapter, and even the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy chapter. Um, just the way the games could. Uh, be inventive with such restrictions in those yeah. days as well. There was actually a, a meetup I went to a few years ago here, where you know there's this retro trend of writing games for cartridges, um, and the restrictions you have, you know, you have to create an entire game in uh, tens of kilobytes, whereas right. these days <laughs> you do something in Unity or Unreal. It's adding on megabytes, if not gigabytes, before you've even done anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas these games were running on, I don't, I don't think in some of these they weren't even running off floppy disks. You know, they were running off of uh, server space and things like that. Yeah. Um, paper punch tape. Yeah. It paper, was, yeah. Actually, that was. Th- this is actually the. the f- I think. I think I'm mostly getting to my point. Just. The, There's, there's so many passageways we can, we can turn to here, you know, it's like (laughs) our own piece of interactive fiction, Um, interactive podcasts. No, anyway, Um, is that especially in this early phase and probably continuing, but the gaming industry just becomes so big at a certain point that there's sort of more space for all sorts of things, but just how a lot of uh, games end up really pushing the boundaries of technology and, pushing it forwards you know the early creations of the internet basically accelerate because of games the creations of all sorts of bits of technologies that we now take for granted come from people wanting to enjoy using computers which is right. <laughs> strange <laughs> yeah. if you think about it i don't know yeah. yeah i suppose i should ask um there's a lot here we have 50 games obviously and you know
1: you could keep going um, how many of them are you able to play? You can actually still play almost all of them. I think there's only four or five that you can't play, um, which is kind of incredible because if you were writing about other kinds of digital game, I think that would not be mm. <laughs> nearly as true, especially not legally, if you're restricting yep. yourself to legal true, ways to true. play them. Um, and part of the reason for that is because text games tend to be so sort of small and portable. Um, it's easy to write, emulators or to write new platforms to play them on as technology changes. Right. So if you look at something like, you know, a Sega Genesis games um, until yep. we got to the era of Internet emulation and stuff uh, for a while, as that hardware was fading, it was really hard to be able to play any of those games unless someone had, you know, sort of taken the time and effort to port them to a new platform um, because they were tied to that hardware mm-hmm. and they were tied mm-hmm. to, you know, particular requirements kind of, of playing them at that time. Um, so, you know, I wrote uh, for one of the, uh, the bonus features for the Kickstarter was um, uh, I wrote an original game for um, that came on a floppy disk that uh, came with your, your order. And the floppy disk also had the full contents of the book on it. So I only had a, I think it was like 92 kilobytes of space left over. Um, and A, I could do that in a text adventure, which again, you can't say it, most other game genres, but B. I could write it in, I, I wrote it in a language that would have ran fine on a computer from like 1995 yeah. uh, or even probably, you know, the 80s. Um, and that's because of the kind of stability of some of these platforms. So, so I wrote that in a language called Inform, which has been around since yes, the early you might have, yeah. and was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of reverse engineering Infocom story format from the 70s and 80s. And that was one of the yeah. big text game companies that released a lot of the, the sort of classic yeah. text adventure games yeah yeah um, yeah so people are still writing games in inform now yep and they're kind of essentially running on the same engine that was devised yep. in the late 70s which is kind it's of only a up to 80s. version
0: seven which for something yeah. this yep.
1: that old is
0: is pretty outstanding yeah uh, i have tried it it's, it's interesting because the, the strange thing that changes throughout this storyline is of course that to begin with it's very free form you talk to them which is kind of the world that inform is in and it has a, a, a I don't want to say language model because that's become to mean something else, but it has a um, a way that it parses what you say, which is usually very frustrating because no one can under, get it to understand them. Right. right. Uh, whereas then at a point it changes where you have the more, the hypertext or menu options, that kind of thing. And it's more restricting, but at least, it works. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 interesting to me too. So some of those things are really stable, but then there's also still you know all kinds of experiments. That was another thing that surprised me about the breadth of stuff in the book. Kind of mm. looking back on it, as how much variety there was. You know, yes. there are definitely multiple oh. games in the same sort of little subgenre, like the text adventure or the hypertext. But there are so many games that are kind of one-off experiments that never were tried again. Yeah. Um, there's so many games, like I said, that there's a whole world of that game, but I just talk about one example. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a surprisingly broad umbrella <laughs> that covers a lot of different kinds of games.
0: Well, as I say, I've only got uh, 13, 14 chapters in so far at the point I'm recording this with you. And it's already a wonderful in-depth kind of story that we've, sort of covered here not only touches on the games themselves but the industry at the time around them you know the the not even going back well 50 years might sound like a long time but um you know you look at where computers are at the beginning of the book and where they are at the end of the book and it feels like such a massively long period of time yeah Uh, and you can actually sort of it's a weird that, backdoor way to talk about the history of computers, exactly. basically, because it kind of covers. The, and
1: the people yeah. who made them, and which is, the <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> which yep. is
0: equally as fascinating because some of these people vanish without a trace. Some of them stick around. Some of them vanish and then resurface, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I will also say that uh, the layout of the book is actually very nice. You've done some really nice oh, things you. with the way you you lay it out and lead to some of the references and things. I think this probably relates to some of your. Uh, experiments with creating, you know, fiction in different ways because you think about how information
1: can be conveyed. Yeah, it's, it's... In some it's, respects, you've tried to make it interactive even though it's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, tr- I try very hard to sort of like cross-reference the other games in the book because yeah. I wanted you to be able to sort of, you know, you could read a chapter, a chapter going forward, yeah. but I also thought it'd be really interesting if you started the last chapter and saw what games, you know, yeah. influenced that and jump back to those and then yeah. saw what games influenced those. So I think you could yeah. kind of trace a path you know, in the other direction, or or bounce around, or you know, I yeah. think it would be interesting to sort of read it rhizomatically. You know, just as the connections uh, come across, you know, what you're looking at. So I'm going to ask three final questions, or maybe two in a bit. The first
0: one is maybe 50 years is a bit long to look ahead, but let's say 10 years. What do you think uh, if you were to make a follow up to this, a supplement in 10, 20 years? What kinds of games do you
1: think you might be writing about? Yeah, that's a good question. Looking back on this history, people have almost always been comically wrong about their predictions about what the future uh, of games is going to be. Uh, you know, in, in the 80s or in the 90s, as a good example, CD-ROMs came out and everything was going multimedia and full motion video. And so everyone was like, wow, 10 years from now, we're going to have games on DVDs with hundreds of hours of footage and Live oh, actors video everywhere. CD. don't we remember you well. Yes. Yep. Um, but then, of course, that completely died a few years after that, right? I think right now there's so much AI hype, and it very yeah. well may be that 10 years from now, games are all entirely driven by generative AI. But it could also be that it's the thing that fizzles out. And for whatever mm-hmm. reason, you know, and there's all kinds of potential reasons, legal, moral, uh, technological you know, we don't go down that path uh, or fully commit to it anyway. Mm. So I think it's hard to say, but I think the one thing that is going to remain constant is that people will still keep making text games of one kind or another because it's, you know, like we said at the start of the show, it's just such a, it's easy to do, right? One one Mm. person can make a full game and that's super appealing. You know, language has been around for thousands of years. It's not going away anytime soon. So we're going to, you know, continually be fascinated with how you tell stories with language and how computers can help you do that in a new and interesting way. So, uh, you know, I think f- 10 or 50 or 100 years from now, people will still be making games that are largely driven by text and what they actually look like. No one can say, but I'm pretty confident as a medium, it's, it's going to stick around and continue to evolve. Yep. I hope so, too. Um, and as
0: we see, there's a resurgence in some of these older formats, like the Choose Your Own Adventure books, whether that's just it's the same people who bought them 30 years ago who now have money <laughs> and time on their hands. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> so I guess we'll wait and see for what the equivalent might be in 20 years or so. Um, so I guess most people have missed the Kickstarter. Um, But the book is shipping on June 23rd, so in just under a month, um, time of recording. If people were too late for the Kickstarter, I guess
1: they can still get a copy on your website. You can still still pre-order some of the physical editions of the book are sold out or close to selling out. But if uh, the quickest way is to just Google 50 Years of Text Games and you should pull up um, the place you can pre-order it, uh, there's quite a lot of the paperback still available, in particular, so um, that edition should be around at least yeah. for the next couple months. Um, and yeah. the digital version, uh, which you know I, is is if I say so myself, a, a pretty nice ebook conversion. We put a lot yeah. of effort into making that flow well and read well on e readers and Kindles. um yeah. will be available in perpetuity, so that one will always be yeah. um, available.
0: And you raised 650000 which is crazy. Yeah,
1: it was, it was, I did not expect it to raise that much. Um, it, uh, I think it became at the time, it was the second highest funded nonfiction book campaign in Kickstarter history, which kind of blew my mind. But I've been using yeah. that as a good example, if anyone... You know, says this yeah. genre. You know, isn't relevant no, it's or doesn't amazing. have any fans, yeah. I can point to that now. Can and even and say, well, actually <laughs> like
0: uh, Brandon Sanderson with his books. So it was like mm-hmm. four million, but he's a well-known writer, and that's fiction.
1: That's yeah, not, I think it was forty million. Because I I calculated old, it at right one point. Kid, right. I calculated <laughs> at one point what percentage of a Sanderson I was as the new sort of you know uh, uh, measuring stick for. <laughs> Didn't book, that also full success, books, as, I think as well. So you have it's to like point oh oh eight Sandersons. It's like well, it's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with that.
0: And if people want to stay in touch with you, I think you have uh, Aaron Reed double A, or, sorry, Aaron A Reed. there's lots of A's there, double yep. A, <laughs> Aaron A Reed.net. dot net. Yep. And a lot there. There's a mailing list and et cetera, et cetera, which I'll sign up to. Hi, uh, If anyone has even the vaguest interest in what we've spoken about, and I've spoken about this on, on uh, my YouTube channel and a few other places before, then I highly recommend getting a copy of the book because it is a wonderful read. Um, and... Yeah. What are you working on next? That's the final question.
1: Uh, yeah. Always a good one. Um, I've been doing the last couple of years, my sort of day job has been sort of contracting in games on kind of interactive narrative systems. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the rare position where I can both write for systems like that, but also help design and build them. So, um, I've got a big project that I've been working on in that space. Um, book wise, I've been really tempted, uh, because, Uh, 2024 will be the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons being released. So I've been really (laughs) tempted to do a book 50 years of tabletop role playing games. But we'll we'll see if I actually have the the stamina and uh, uh, drive to, to make something like that happen. But there's definitely a lot of cool stuff to talk about there, too. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that was my interview with Aaron. I hope you enjoyed that. Go and grab a copy of the book if you can. It's a fascinating read and I'm not even finished. All right, updates from me. Any of you who visit some of my profiles will notice that I'm slowly rolling out new logos. Finally, I have my new chinchilla uh, drawn for me by an artist here in Berlin. I am rebranding the Chinchilla Tales show with a new logo too and a whole bunch of other things happening around all of those Slowly, but surely. And then content from me, a little light at the moment because I've been very busy with some other things, but I did a, an edited live stream with Marcus Olsen uh, where we looked at creating an Obsidian plugin. Uh, in the next couple of days, I'll be looking at Astro's new Starlight option for documentation sites. And I wrote a blog post on seven macOS native Uh, Generative AI applications, everything from uh, a chat GPT wrapper to new Photoshop beta, all of which were very interesting. And I think about the whole idea of would I use these moving forward and why and when, that kind of thing. I have also soft released a collection of flash fiction, um, but I'm just experimenting with a little bit of layout with the cover. If you really want to go and find it, you can go searching around on Drive Through Fiction. But it will be up on some other platforms with a much better production very, very soon. But it's there; it's in progress. And if you head over to the Chinchilla Tales podcast, you will also find some excerpts, some some audio version excerpts of readings from that. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I will be back next time, and take care. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.